Welcome back to Asking VCs for Money. Today, a special treat all the way from Paris, Alex Bouaziz, co-founder and CEO of Deal. Deal is one of the fastest growing companies I've ever encountered, but we'll ignore most of that to focus on Alex's Series A. He has a particular view on how to raise money and executes against that view incredibly well. Oh, and real quick, before we get started, we're doing a Q&A episode, which means we need questions so that I can answer them. Anything you've been curious about regarding fundraising, please send it over. You can tweet them at me, at Harris, or email raise at magidandco.com, and you can find links for that down in the show notes. And now, Mr. Buaziz. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Alex. Alex Boazis, introduce yourself. Introduce the company that you started. I, I wish you introduced it because you were the one that invested in like whatever that was when we were through YC. <laughs> uh, but sure, first, okay. Thanks again for having for having us. Uh, I'm Alex. I'm the CEO and uh, co-founder of Deal. Um, what we do at Deal is we help companies uh, globally hire. So we build the whole infrastructure for you to hire anyone anywhere and give them a great experience. How is that? I haven't done the one-liner thing for a bit. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I mean, you you know, it works. True, true. Now we're actually even maybe switching one-liner to becoming the complete HR solution for global teams. So this Ooh, is going to be fun. <laughs> a, whole, a whole different one. Fine. We're not even, even going to touch that because look, what we're going to focus on today, what I really want to talk about is some of your early fundraising. Let's talk about your seed first. So how much did you raise in seed financing before your A? We raised our seed round, I think about four and something million dollars in right right off YC, like between Demo Day or right after Demo Day. I think it was, our, our one-liner for Demo Day was gusto for international contractors. Um, we might even have come up with that one together, but that was initially our one-liner. <laughs> now, fun fact, uh, before we move on, do you remember or do you want to tell everyone what the company was when Yun Shuo applied to YC? Because I, I think I, I told someone this last week and they just looked at me blankly and they, they honestly couldn't understand what I had said. So what was it when you applied? You know, I think what we applied and what we have today is not that different from each other. It's just the way we packaged it and the way we bundled it and explained it to people is very different. But when we started, we wanted to help people get paid. and at the time, we thought when you're a freelancer or a contractor and you want to get paid by someone else, the main problem you have is trust. So we thought, hey, what can solve trust? And then we, well, it was a, a crypto bubble time. Uh, actually, not even anymore. And we thought, hey, the it best It wasn't way... the crypto bubble. No, no that's what was so it interesting. Wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. You guys were like, hey, we're doing smart contracts. And everyone's yeah, exactly. like, what? Yeah, because we were like, okay, I want to pay you. You're on the other side of the world. And at the time, we didn't realize like, Payments were kind of commoditized. It was more the compliance aspect that was tough, right? And I guess that's when you should probably talk to your customers before making assumptions. But we thought, hey, it's probably because they don't trust the other party, right? Like you're hiring someone in another country, maybe you don't trust them. And we thought, well, what a better way than just releasing the money at time T, whenever that time T happens and whatever triggers it. And kind of like at the time, I, I was kind of fascinated by smart contracts. So that that was how we wanted to build it. Well, yeah, I do remember this idea, you know, hey, we're going to use smart contracts to watch what people do against a contracting gig. And as they trigger things, it pays out. It's like, that seems nuts. But maybe if you could programmatically understand when work is completed. And honestly, these two, like Schwo and Alex, yeah, like that, that seems good. So 
whatever. What drove the change from that smart contract thing to focusing on compliance? What was it that drove that change? Um, you know, we iterated a lot. I still think programmatically removing trust from a transaction is something that's super interesting. And I come from the world of like, I'm, I had made so many friends online, I had never met and played video games with them, right? So like the definition of anonymity never felt weird to me. So being able to remove trust from a transaction also felt like something that would make a lot of sense. And I think at the time when we applied, we actually applied it to social media and it was based on like number of likes or stuff like that uh, for to trigger it. So that was the actual thing. Oh, that's right. Uh, it was, hey, yes, you're going to create like that. a Twitter post or something. And if it gets enough engagement, that's the Correct. thing you were paying for. Oh my God, it that really was, was it. insane. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right, right, right. I, I've, I've, I've forgotten that part. Okay, good. That was it. So like, it even made sense. Trustless transaction based on engagement that you can measure against something tangible, right? So it kind of made sense. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, basically we realized, hey, like, it's kind of like growing a little bit. And, uh, you know, we had group office hours every two weeks, I think, where you kind of sit down and you compare how you've been doing to everyone else. And we're like, we're here. It's kind of growing. Maybe we're forcing growth but it's not really happening and everybody else was doing amazing. At least, you know, the mindset, whether or not it's the right mindset was like right. showing off and we were definitely not able to show up. So we're like, fuck, like we got to do something else. Right. Uh, and we got to pivot. And then we pivoted a lot. I don't know if you remember, but like, for example, in the in the space of understanding trustless transaction, we met people that have not been paid and we talked to our customers and we tried that collection agency, I don't know if you remember, to help those guys that had not been paid get paid. And we iterated for a lot of products. And I think eventually what happened is, uh, well, we moved away from crypto pretty fast because most of our customers did not want to pay in crypto. So we introduced PayPal. And one of our batchmates at the time, a company called Sansama Ashu, had used deal in the way it's meant to be used today. So suddenly had escrowed a bunch of money on PayPal and started paying his teammates for like a three months, three milestones every month, releasing the money. And I was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and then we realized, hey, like the idea of like tying contracts, payments together, which are very dissociated elements, kind of makes sense. And you know, his view right. on this was like, hey, you're helping me solve that problem. So, yeah. <laughs> So basically, a customer uh, used your product in a way you did not intend, and that actually told you what your company should be, which is kind of a cool way to follow a customer. You know, it seems that there's, there's different ways to figure out what your company should do. Either sometimes you know, and sometimes someone just kind of hits you over the head and says, no, no, I need this thing. It's so close. Okay, so let's, let's bridge some time for a second. Demo day. So you do this Gusto for International Teams thing. I remember it was tiny at the time, but a bunch of people believed in it. You raised a tranche of money, then another tranche of money. So let's say a total $4 million in that seed. And then how long from there until your A? How many months? Uh, I think like about a year. We started realizing what we're really solving for is compliance and payments infrastructure. Right. And as you can imagine, that doesn't get built in a day. So right. I think to get there, it took us about a year. Where in March 2020, uh, right before COVID started, actually, um, Anish and Andreessen reached out to us for the second time. I think I had actually met him in person once in like September or October when I was still in SF and was excited about the company. I think he had done some due diligence around the space and he was like, okay, like I think what you guys are building is great. And he kind of understood the full picture, which led to the investment. Right. Okay. So let's, let's wind back a little bit there because I think, at least from, from my perspective in watching you build in that year, I think you did a, a fair number of unusual things, actually. Um, because our one unusual thing was actually you 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 stayed in touch and had really good investor updates that always had progress in them. 
And a lot of the time, what I see happen with founders, if they raise a whole bunch of seed money and they're not totally sure of what they're doing, they go and they go in a whole bunch of different directions and they lose sight of what their North Star is, of the fact that they need growth, of the fact that they need the metric. What is it that you did early on that you think helped get you or keep focused on this thing that you were doing and make it so that 20% a month every month? And I remember you did it every single month. It was 20%. Or more. I think, yeah, we knew what we were doing, right? Like we knew the product had value. And for us, it was just, if you don't see it, that means you don't understand how how the word works, right? Like, of course, an international contractor, again, in France is not a 1099 in the US. Of course, you, you're not doing it right. That has helped you do that, right? So we had like deep conviction that there was a need for that specific product. And eventually the product grew into a lot more, right? But like that specific product, we knew it was a matter of like bringing it to the market and having it in front of as many people as we could while building a better and better product and talking to our customers so that we understand what other pain points they had. So we really didn't have to like skew away from it too much, right? Like for us, it was, you have a team internationally, let us help you make, give them a great experience and just being very focused on revenue numbers, right? Like if you have a business and needs to grow, needs to make money. So if you're making money every month, that means there's more potential into the business and you should double down on it. When Anish reached out to you, you said that was the second time you'd talked to him. How many investors had you gotten to know, kind of Series A possible investors, had you gotten to know in call it the, that year? Um, you actually helped us with our Series A, I remember. So I, I think we had a couple of term sheets um transparently none like i had met an a niche that was the only meeting i had taken because i think andreessen's a cool brand i think that was the only like series a investors i had talked to which made it interesting because when we did get to our series a i had to somehow pull out a couple term sheets out of my head to make the process competitive and we actually did and got a valuation that was i think 50 plus percent higher so that was an important process um but uh, I think that was the only investor we actually talked to at the time. And that was a very brief coffee chat, like 20 minutes, yeah. not even. Is he the only person that reached out to you over the course of that year? I don't remember. I think he was the only one that did it the right way, which was got a warm introduction from Ryan Hoover um, from Product Hunt at the time and Weekend Fund. And I really liked that niche because one, first, he really had the right mindset, but second, I think I've told him, so I think he won't mind me saying it on a podcast. I, I like the idea of tying, he was new at Andreessen, so tying yeah. like his reputation into deal, <laughs> into making sure deal is very, very successful as one of the first investments. I think the first investment he's ever made. So like, I like that concept. It's a good track record, um, certainly on that one. I don't know what else he did, but you know that's that's a good that's a good start. Um, although it's a pretty high standard to live up to, so sorry everyone else in the portfolio. Um, okay, so there's there's two there's two theories on how to kind of raise a Series A or a Series B or a Series C, and I know that you've spent more time with investors since that A and gotten to know more people over time. Um, so maybe a comparison is helpful here. But the two schools of thought are one: you build a relationship over a long period of time with people and you get to know people and then you make your choice at the point of fundraise based on a bunch of different things. And, and um, you know, Christina Cassioppo, who was on the show before, talked a lot about that, about getting to know people over a long period of time. The other school of thought is, listen, the only thing I'm going to do is focus on the business. And then when I'm going to fundraise, I'm going to pop out and be like, hey, fundraising and hope that you have enough people around and your growth is good enough that it works. You went the second path. 
Was that thought through or by default? I think it's super dangerous to share too many updates with investors. At the beginning, I know people don't like that, but I do think it's a kind of a poker game where you have your hand and the earlier you show your hand, the you know, the more time people have to think and whether right. or not uh, they want to invest in your company. At least at the seed round, you know, that, I think that was one of the principles of YC, right? Like do it as closely as you can to demo day because in the bubble of like, I need to invest in YC companies, the more time you give to people, the more time they have to pass, which is a sad but true, right? And when you're building up the, the hype and the story around your company. For us, I think it was just very distracting. Like fundraising takes a lot of time, takes a lot of brain space. I would rather wait until the last moment and be attractive enough as a company where I can just turn around the, you know, turn on the hit and get the right people involved. I would say that we had great angel investors that were kind of purposely picked to make sure that I had the network when I needed it. Right. Um, and that we had the metrics to just kind of show up and say, right. we're raising who wants to come in the round, who wants to compete on that round. For us, I think we'll talk about it as well, but my mindset, I, I actually talked about it a couple of times, but I don't know if you know that, but between the moment we fundraise our, the seed round in our A, we had raised, I think, $4.2 million. We came into our A, that was one of our slide deck actually, at the partner meeting of Andreessen, we burned like 400K, right? So yeah, we still had so much money in the bank that we we did everything we could to have the power dynamics in, in whatever we were going to raise. So right. investor discussions were one part of that. So, so this raises a different kind of question, right? Which is why fundraise at this point? I remember we had a bunch of conversations around this where over the course of that year, and especially running in that last six months and then three months before you decided to actually raise the round, where it was clear you did not need it, right? You were growing, you were still maintaining that growth. You had plenty of money in the bank. You know, there was no one pressuring you to say, oh, you have to raise. Actually, there were. There were some people saying, oh, you should raise now. And you kept saying no, which I thought was pretty solid. And people were offering you like bridges and you kept saying no because you didn't need it. So what triggered in your head that you and Shuo looked at each other and said, okay, yeah, let's let's actually go raise a big round right now to go do something. Like, what did you see that you needed more money for? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. First, um, you know, predictability of the business. Like at that point, we were very funders-driven sales. Like Shu and I were doing almost ninety percent of the sales, and you know, there were still a lot to prove when it comes down to the reputability of the business and mm -hmm. and where we're gonna go. We did not know how fast we were going to grow as well. Um, so, you know, was it going to take as long as we did today or was it going to take double the time to get to the numbers we got to? Um, I think Andreessen as a brand helped in a, diff in a few ways. Um, so that was non-negligible, right? Like it was a tier one fund rather than like a tier two or three, which made me would have made me rethink. Um I think the valuation was good as well. Like, sure, we could have raised like 20, 30% higher at the time because the markets were a bit crazy, but I think we raised at 60-ish. Like, it was a good valuation for a good chunk of money that was going to give us um, a lot of runway. Sorry, how much did you raise in the A? I think 14 at 60-something. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, it was like a decent round, good investors, good terms. It was a great uh, timing round. Don't was call good. that decent. Yeah, no, good timing. <laughs> so, like, would we have held on like three months later? Well, to be honest, we did raise at 220 plus uh, our B round three months later. But, yeah, that was, you know, 
another story that's, for another time. Right, but right, like that's easier said than done, right? At the right. time, so like, would we have? Could we have hold on and raise a bit higher? Yeah, but I think timing was right. Tanish was a great partner. Is a great partner. So we we're like, look, like if we're gonna involve people in the business now, is a good time. And we felt like it was the right time to start investing a little bit on like the sales side, the marketing side, and. Uh, Again, would we have survived on the money we had for sure? Um, did it give us more comfort accelerating? Yes. When you raised fourteen, was that the output of a specific plan where you said, "Okay, well, we know we need exact, we need fourteen to do X, Y, and Z," or like how much did you pull that out of thin air? Uh, well, if you if you know me, you know that I never think that way. Uh, for me, it's always and actually, it's it got strengthened after the A. The A was the only round that was like in the middle, like budgeting versus like, what I'm going to talk about, uh, which is how much would I sell the percentage, this part of the company for, and why would I sell it to that person, right? right. And that that actually helped us a lot for the fundraisers we did after, because when you have like cash in the bank, when you're growing nicely, where things are going like in the right direction, then you can switch mindset. You're not here to prove like, if you give me that money, I'll get there. You're here more saying, hey, you want to be part of the story. Why? And right what would I be willing to sell you that chunk of the company for, right? Which right. at the end of the day, if you think of like a financing event, it, although it's, you know, now it's like unicorns and rainbows, like it is what you're doing, right? You're selling right. part of the company for right. a chunk of cash, right? So right. for us, switching to that mindset was super important. So getting to a comfortable amount versus value provided by the investor was super important. And in, in the case of Anderson, because it was the first fundraise that we had properly done, because it was, we did do the other side of like, Hey, like with this, this is where we should be able to get to. Right. And then you know the last like I think it was ten, and then the last mile negotiation was around valuation and ownership or stuff like that. But after that, right. my mindset was always like, wh- like why would I sell you part of the company? What right. value would I be willing to do it for? Right, which is absolutely the right mindset. You're the one with the scarce good in that situation. If you have a good company, you're the one who has the thing the VC wants. They have money, but a lot of people have money, right? So you're saying, okay, how much is this worth, and is it the person? So. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a challenge in there for a lot of founders, where a lot of founders maybe don't have the luxury where people are chasing them, or where the company has, you know, like top decile metrics and is just kind of rolling over everyone. Any thoughts on what a founder that is maybe not at top of the growth charts can do running into something like an A or thinking about an A and thinking about, hey, how do I how do I think about this question? My perspective is that if you don't have top metrics why bother with VC money, right? Build your business, build a great business, make good money, retire in 10 years, sell the business, yeah. right? Like if you're looking for venture capital, you're probably looking to build a high growth startup. If you don't have the high growth metrics, why why go and fundraise? So if you want to raise and you don't have them yet, take the next six months to get there yeah. or rethink your strategy, right? Like maybe you don't take money from VCs, go take like debt or something else. But uh, yeah, I mean, I... Unless you have a clear, clear path to like being able to get to scale and growing like crazy, but then, yeah, then you have to convince people, which is a different story, right? Same way you have to convince when you raise a seed round. Yeah, maybe rethink your strategy on whether or not raising venture capital money makes sense for your company. That's an interesting point. And I think it's a, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to think through, especially as you get further down the financing path. Okay, so you start and you raise some angel money or a seed. That's one thing. Raising an A is a different, it's a different beast altogether, right? And then if you get past the A and you don't have the growth, well, then do you raise a B, do you raise a C? You know, there's there's all these off-ramps, but they get harder. 
Yeah, it depends what you want to achieve, right? The problem is like, I mean, guilty, right? Like when I was there at some point, I had the same mindset. So it's like, what are you raising the money for? Are you just like trying, like, is your mind like, I just want to build a big company and get there. Like, if this is that, then you then you have other problems, right? If you want to be in the game for the next 10, 12 years and build a huge business, it's got to be more than just, I want to build a great company. So if you, if your mindset is not, I just want to build a great company, then you're you start being able to compartmentalize a bit and start thinking, what why do i want to do this right, right. like we f- we want to help 100 plus million people get to work for the best companies in the world right like building that global infrastructure for for people to work for the best companies like i think like this is what gets me up at night not let's build deal to be a 100 billion dollar company although right. like sure that that'd be amazing that'd be and cool. that's probably hopefully where we're going to get there uh so like if you think about like why are you doing this then then you usually can have a better decision making on whether or not it makes sense for you to raise external capital and from who and all. I, you know, again, easier said than done, but it's important. You know, I've never actually thought about it quite this way, but um, raising venture, it, I think most people think about it as, oh, it gives me all these options. It creates optionality because it lets me do so many more things. It's the opposite. But it's the opposite. It constricts you. (laughs) It forces you into a set of things, right? Good, good luck acquiring deal, right? Like it's like, (laughs) so no it's like a very thoughtful decision like right you know i I've, I've seen it so many times where like you raise an a you raise a b you could have kept with your sin money built something great and probably make more money when you sell your company without having raised external capital right so again it depends on what is your purpose like what do you want to achieve right uh and yeah i mean for sure raising venture capital corners you into like well either i find an acquirer for like at the time right a 70 million dollar check to buy our company or the company dies or I raise another round and, you know, the exit path is like an IPO, right? Eventually. Right. So it's, yeah, I, if you don't have to, and if this isn't like, if you don't truly believe your company can get there, you don't need to force it. Like, sure, it's nice. You get a TechCrunch article, but after that, you got to do the work. Right. So stuff that happens afterwards, it's a lot trickier. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about the, the round itself. So and you're, you're growing, the business is doing incredibly well. You think you could raise, but you haven't actually decided to go out for a process. And Nish reaches out a second time. And you decide, okay, Andreessen's good. Yes, we could use the money, but we don't want to just negotiate against a niche. Like you don't want to be one-on-one against a firm, right? So what do you do in that moment? And I remember this was pretty fast, but what did you do to make sure that you had at least a level playing field in that process? What what was the process that came together? Um. So I think at the time when I felt like we had a clear path towards a term sheet or potentially even post us getting that term sheet, not, I don't remember the exact chain of events, but I basically reached out to our angel investor, right? The whole investor list. And I think actually, I think when you want to raise a series you got to prepare the, the whole thing a little better, right? Like, and a little before. So yeah. I think throughout Q1, and you can keep me honest and look at our investor updates, but when we started getting some traction, I started kind of like in my investor update asking, hey, like, who do you think is the best person we could talk to for an eventual Series A or things like that? So that kind of like builds the word of mouth of network of like the value and external the, the value, which is like, hey, deal is starting to think about that. You should meet them. You should meet them. You should meet them. You should meet them. And then right. you start kind of building up for... Ah, but wait, 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 wait
Okay. <laughs> you don't mediate. You just Alex create the, the right. environment, right. right? You create the environment, which is like, Dill is thinking about a Series A. Right. There's a whole bunch like, of people you want, talking. Buzz. Exactly. You want Ryan, you want Aaron, you want like for us, Elad or Daniel to start saying, hey, like I have, you know, it's in their best interest for us to right. eventually raise a Series A, right? Like, so you want them to start saying, oh, you know, at lunch with their friend, investor friend. Oh yeah, my, my company, they've been growing like 20% month on month. They have pretty good metrics. Like they're thinking about raising an A at some point. It's that concept. Uh, a friend of mine taught me a couple months ago, which is like, when everybody around you starts saying, oh, those guys are good. You should look at it. Those guys are good. You should look at it. Then, you know, you eventually want to look at it. And that helps right. a lot when you're fundraising. It's called advertising. Um, <laughs> well, it, it is. Word of mouth advertising. I know, I but, yeah, that's, yeah. But, no, but, but people <laughs> underestimate this. And, I, and this is the funny thing. I think people, you didn't do the thing where you just sat quietly forever and hoped something would come your way. You actually started to build that whisper network, right? You made sure that yeah, it was fertile ground. Look, there's a there's a saying uh, I love. Uh, I don't remember who taught me that. Probably my father, uh, which is I think it's kind of a Jewish saying as well. Let me translate it from French. Help yourself, and the sky will help you. Right, and God will help you. If you don't help yourself, right, you know, right, no one is going to do it for you. Right, so right. like, you know, building out the playing field, being a couple of steps ahead, understanding like, okay, like I start working on this in January. I'll be able to get the right introduction in March. Like you, it's your job, right? You got to think about that. No one is thinking about your company apart from you, right? So right. you need to make the right decisions. Can I pull on one thing so, that yeah. you said? Yeah. Nobody's thinking about you. I think um, a lot of founders have the wrong idea in their head. They think that they're angel investors, that they're Series A investors. They're like are always thinking about their company because they're so special. Nobody thinks about you. Nobody, <laughs> right? Until you I'm make sure, them I'm think sure. about you. I'm sure there's some people that invested in deal that probably don't even remember. Invested in They're going to get a very nice check one day, I guess, right? Yeah. No, Hopefully, but like, look, yeah. some investors have a list and they, you know, they, they go through their list periodically and reach out to see how people are doing. But for the most part, you have to do this yourself. You have to remind people that you exist because you there's so much going on. Markets are crashing. This thing's going wrong. That thing's going wrong. Like you got to do this thing and make sure it works really, really well. It's the same concept on launching. Like whenever a founder launches on Product Hunt or like Hacker News Maneuver, you think everybody cares, but like no one cares. So you can relaunch 10 times the same product and like no one will even notice. It's the same thing for investors. I mean, the whole idea of like an investor list is like, please don't forget me. We're still right. here. We're still alive. Right, but what's funny is most people think about their investor updates as, oh no, I have to keep this information secret because someone might find out what we're doing. Yes! You hope someone's going to find out what you're doing, but you're careful about what information goes. Yeah, exactly. You just right? you're just careful what you share. Right. My, our board decks like were forwarded to competitors. Um, yes. Whoever did that, uh, so like uh, you know, like you, it's fine. Like you're building a everything great you release is public. Like everything you release yeah, to a small group of people. Is exactly. Public, and if and if you if you think that is what's going to like block you from building a hundred billion dollar business, then no. Right. Right. Okay, so you, you've laid the, the groundwork. The angels are talking about you. Anish comes in second time, really wants to talk. He comes in pretty hot. Not high enough. <laughs> Not high enough initially, correct. But I remember, I just remember this one conversation. I was walking around in front of my house with you on the phone, and we were talking about the negotiation and getting other people in. And I remember there were at least two or three other funds that were at the point of making offers or yeah, who made they were, offers. No, we had, ter we had, we had other term sheets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you, how many people did you end up formally pitching as, hey, we're actually fundraising now? Do you remember? 
maybe four or five. You got three or four term sheets, right? We got three term sheets. Great. The yeah. people who didn't give you a term sheet. Yeah. Do you know why? Well, I know one of them regrets it pretty bad. Um, so that I know. Uh, I think, so look, this like, super transparently, when we got to a series A, funders let sell. That's exactly why one of those big funds passed. Um, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. We just knew that we were building something and people wanted to buy it. Like customer of acquisition costs, LTV and stuff like that. I know it's super important metrics, but like the truth of the matter is like the first time we got to that stage in our lives we're starting to solve those problems like what Andreessen did really well is they understood that we didn't have all those answers but they had like Anish had a person he worked with like an analyst Matt who spent hours with Shuo helping us build our cohorts because like we had not built our cohorts before and like understanding that there were gaps in our knowledge of what mattered versus like clearly what was working was super critical and the reason one of those big funds passed, they were like, oh, those guys don't know shit, right? Like, they don't know what their character, LTV, and those things are. And the truth is, we didn't. Like, right. we, at the time, it was just like me and Shua trying to sell. Who wants to buy the product? How much are they willing to pay? Can we increase the price? Like, I think all, a lot of those mechanisms, sure, if you have a second-time funder or, a, you know, a person that has worked for those type of companies, maybe they'll have that nailed down. They're like, it's not exactly very tough skills to master, right? Like, so I think, like, that was not exactly the right mindset, but that that's why one or like one fund I know passed big tier one fund. And then the second one, I just think we didn't talk to the right person, to be honest. Like the yeah. person we talked to just wasn't doing those type of SaaS deals. So when you ended up picking a niche, uh, was it because he made the highest offer? No, I, we had an offer that was significantly higher. Um, also a tier one fund? Tier two. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, I like, I like the person a lot. So, He's tier one in my heart. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> and everyone's got their own definitions of tier one and two, but sure. Right. Um, I think it's a mix of a few things. The thing is, like, transparently, I think, Anish doing the work and coming and saying, like, I want to invest in you guys. This is why I think you guys are great. This is why I think there's a huge market. This is why I think you're going to be successful. This is what I hope you'll get to and you'll build is so much more validating, valuable than, hey, guys, you have a term sheet. Figure out if you want to invest, right? Like, so he came in with a huge edge on everybody else, which is like he had deeply dived into the market, talked to all the other companies, and I realized deal is going to be the winner, right? So like mm -hmm. from, not just from an ego standpoint, sure, like the ego part is nice, but like the fact that someone has done the work and understands to some extent what you're talking about means they care. It's not just... You got a term sheet from Andreessen. I'm going right. to compete, right? Right. Uh, so that was very critical. What I told you about Anish is that I like the fact that he was near the firm. So tying his future to ours was kind of it was actually like a big Which part a, of my thinking process. And by the way, that's that's um that's a counterintuitive move because a lot of people will say, no, I don't want the new person because of one of two things. One, they don't have the political pull within the firm, and so if you know if things don't go as well as we need, they're not going to be able to get us that bridge or something. And two. If they're too tied to your success, they'll try to muck around in your business. Like they'll get too involved, especially former operators, right? Yeah. Um, hasn't happened with Anish. Sure, we didn't need a bridge round. Uh, but, well, you know, it's 
Andreessen did invest pretty heavily in our C round. So mm-hmm. having a fund that had really big Yeah, but pockets. you were doing so well at that point that like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's more the question at the start. I, I, yeah, I think Anish was not only an operator. He was a founder. Mm-hmm. So I think he understood that meddling too much with a company that's successful can only bring, I think, negative results uh, most of the time. So, like, he really let us execute. And, like, you know, we were executing. Like, there was no real reason for him to... He was just a really great sounding board or a great person to help us close. I have seen that for what it's worth, like, junior partners at, like, big tier one firms who, like, friends of mine were, like... You know, the person definitely got way too involved and created yeah. like intern organizational messes. But I think maybe we got lucky on that. I mean, I wouldn't say we got lucky because we were like the first investment, first one of the first big investment of Yasmin as well at Spark, right? Mm-hmm. So like I took the same bet on our Series B. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yasmin did the same thing. I mean, we're not going to have time to dig into your B, but she did the same thing. There's a pattern here niche. for you. As a niche, she yeah. really got to know the business. She understood it. I remember you coming. She's like, uh, she keeps coming and she keeps like telling us things about how deeply she's understood it. And that impressed you. And I I think that's often true for founders. Like they, you want to feel good. Like you want to feel as if the person really wants to own that equity. Yeah. I mean, it's the same principle of like, why should I sell you 10% or 20% of the company? Because you think the business is super valuable because you have value to the business because you understand it rather than because you have capital, right? Like at the time, we'll see what happens now, but capital was pretty commoditized. So, uh, you know, we had the luxury to pick who we want to work with. And it's like, I think your board members, your investors or you know, their partner in the business um, in in lots of ways. And that changes over time as well. And if they're not deeply you know, in love, right? But if they don't deeply care about what you're doing or deeply understand it, there's no value over time, right? right. Like they're not going to bring you as much value as they could versus if they truly care about the business. When you're at the point where you have multiple term sheets sitting in front of you and you know the one you want, you know the person you probably want, but they have to hit something. How do you actually frame that? It's pretty simple. It's like, they again, they want to buy the equity and this is the value. If you don't think the price is right, you don't you just walk away and that's fine. You know, like no hard feelings. Like we'll, we'll talk again in whenever that makes sense. And then if you think that you can get to the price we want and probably even higher if we keep executing, then you'll pay more. Uh, that actually, you know, that's, a, <clears throat> that's very triggering for investors when you'll tell them, you know, we'll just talk in a couple of months and you'll just pay more. It's fine. Like when you have the cash to be able to say that, it really triggers them and definitely had a couple of people pay up because of that statement and when you have Um, the track record of growth right when you just keep hitting that metric every single month at different sizes it becomes a lot more believable for sure like um then you just and if you send investor updates that make it so as well like you start building that like fear of missing out which is uh, whether or not you want it is a different story right but uh from from your investors and your board members like you want them to be very excited about the business just not oh shit like we're gonna miss on that bunch of money for our lps um but i think you know the deal is not signed till it's signed like we were gonna go with anish uh, a price and then we got a term sheet that was higher and i had to go back to anish and say like i'm sorry i can't make that work like why am i gonna take a 40 percent discount on my company uh, at that point and i mean we had said we'd do the deal so it wasn't like a shake deal but it was like order Right, you know, right. That's what enables us to and raise you didn't it. Like, make uh, him, if I remember correctly, it's not like you said, "Oh, you have to beat that offer." You're like, you have to make this make sense for me, right? It wasn't exactly. Yeah, right. we came. Yeah, we came back and right. we said, "If you did that, then we would feel comfortable." Like, we had an offer at a hundred percent plus of the price that he had given us. Right, like 
we right. definitely took a nice like Andres and discount at that time. I like right. to call it that way. But like, and I don't think you love that we took that discount. By the way, no, I, was, I remember correctly. No, 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 no. I didn't want you to necessarily high ticket. Like I rarely think it's the high tick. I think you just had to. I think maybe you said yes a little too fast, even provisionally. But in the end, yeah. it w but in the end, it's fine. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at that round, right? You get the person you get, and yeah. it, it's worth so much more later. Who cares? If you have the person. Exactly. Exactly. And like, I think if you're going to have like tight rounds of discussions for term shit, being super candid on like, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to make work is super helpful because how you react to that person also, like maybe you'll figure out very quickly that you're not a match and like not right. being a match right. for a person that's going to be on your board for the next 15 years, probably like is an important thing to figure out really fast. Right. That's it's a really important thing. And it's harder. And, you know, this is, it's much harder to do in that kind of condensed timeline of a process where you have to make a decision like a weekend or in just a week of whether or not you want to work with someone. Yeah. I think we got pretty lucky on that front where, you know, maybe apart from like one or two things we had to manage with our board that were a bit harder to do. Like the people we worked with, I mean, you, you do reference checks and you make sure you're working with the right person. You know, I asked uh, Andreessen and Anish to talk to like two to three funders that had negative experience with them. Like you got to do the work in order right. to make sure you're getting the right person in front of you because uh, it's really hard to go back from that. But times will tell. But what I've seen is that most of the investors that those big firms nowadays, so like the newer GPs, care a lot more about rep because they have to, right? They're generally much more funder-centric than they used to be compared mm -hmm. to like some like super cutthroat investors that were in the past. So like, yeah, it's a luxury we have nowadays that we a lot of previous entrepreneurs didn't have. Totally, totally fair. Um, all right, parting thought. Obviously, you've raised a, done a whole bunch of fundraisers between then and now. If you could go back in time and do something different about your A, what would you have done differently or or what do you think, I don't know, looking back, wasn't exactly what you would have wanted to do? I would have done my A the exact same way we did it. I wouldn't have changed anything. I would have done my seed differently. I would have raised a little less capital at our seed. Yeah. I think $4 million was a lot. And yeah. specifically at Holden, we were, we didn't have to dilute ourselves that much that early. Uh, but, you know, uh, we've, if you can rebuild the word, so you know it's easier said now. Right. Uh, but I think our A is pretty well executed with a good partner, good timing, um, good market timing as well from like a PR perspective that was yes. really good for us to leverage. So I, I would redo it the exact same way we did it today. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think the lesson I'll take from that is thinking about that seed, thinking about dilution really and and thinking about the fact that your company is always going to be more valuable in the future if you're doing a good job i think the tendency yeah. for people is to raise too much money at any given round and so you want to think about how much you're selling and what you like whether or not you should do that yeah exactly. i mean you know for our series d we were going to raise a lot less than we raised and then i talked to like someone you know like a big yc founder and i told him hey like this is what we want to raise and you told me take a $150 million plus. And I was like, dude, I don't need that money. He's like, take it. Well, I'm happy I took it today. Right. So it's very situational. Because the price was good at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah. price Fair. was good at the time. It's a big war chest that we can use. Like, I think that's what you call it. But like now we can go and buy a bunch of companies. Like timing is great. So like it's very situational. Right. But 
the early like early on the difference between two million dollars and two and a half or two and three it's big it's big from an equity perspective yeah it's not big from an execution perspective right that's what i mean that's important so like you know, it was the first time someone ever gave us money. So we're like, the more we take, the better. But I think right. there's a threshold at which, like, you got $2.5 million. You should be able to get to a nice Series A and not take, for in our case, that $1.7 plus million dilution. We did, like, raise the cap. Like, we didn't dive into that. But we did raise a bunch at 10 and then a bunch at 15. Yeah. Um. So that kind of helped. It helped. If you can raise two and a half, if you can't execute to a million bucks in ARR on that, you have another, you have another problem. Right. And if you're going to raise more, yeah. make sure you're getting to a lot more than a million in ARR and like raise a different kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's the thing I would like to sit around pre-seed. I think a lot of people give a lot away of their company. If I was starting again, I would never do that again. That's the main thing. So I would be a bit more thoughtful. Yeah. All right. Alex, thank you so much for talking to me. Really appreciate it. Of Always course. lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in to Asking VCs for Money. If you like what you heard, do me a favor and tell a friend or two that might need help asking a VC for money. And if you really liked it, write us a review in Apple Podcasts. My producer, Mickey Capper, will be extremely grateful. Thanks again and see you soon.